This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media podcast about all things in print. This is your host, Stuart in L.A., and I'm currently trying to get the sand out from between my toes. I've been down at the beach reading Jaws, the 1974 blockbuster novel by Peter Benchley that inspired the 1975 blockbuster movie by Steven Spielberg. We're currently reviewing all of the films in the Jaws franchise over at our sister podcast, Now Playing, and they are available exclusively to listeners who are able to support us by donating $10 or more. But I thought I'd throw you guys a freebie here and give you my perceptions of the original source material, as well as seeing how it stacks up against Spielberg's work. Now, how many times have you heard somebody say, when they dismiss a movie, eh, the book was better? Well, you're not going to hear that from me today. Jaws may prove to be the exception to that rule, and I don't mind telling you that I think that Jaws is perhaps one of Spielberg's greatest triumphs. Do I feel as passionately about Peter Benchley's book? Not exactly. Why would that be? I mean, on the surface, the skeleton of the plot is identical. I mean, our main character is Martin Brody. He's the chief of police and the new-to-Amity beachside community. He is afraid of water, and he is challenged with that when a young swimmer is washes ashore. Her remains indicate that she was mauled by a great white shark. And Brody has a big back and forth with the mayor about whether the beaches should be closed. The mayor and others want to keep it going because the town depends on the revenue of the summer. And if they shut it down, they're effectively killing all the businesses. Well, because Brody does not take action and draw a line in the sand, several more people die, including an old man and a young boy and another fisherman. And so Brody finally has enough, puts his foot down, shuts down the beaches, and teams up with an oceanographer named Matt Hooper and a salty old seaman named Quint to go out to sea and track down and kill that great white. And much like you may remember, the boat is sunk. The fish is larger than they expect. Hooper gets into a shark cage and tries to stick it as a final recourse. And actually in the novel, he is killed. That's different than in the movie. And Quint is eaten. That's pretty much how it goes in the movie. But before he goes down, Quint gets a good jab with the harpoon. And that takes the fish out before it gets to Brody, making him the sole survivor to swim back to shore when the novel concludes. Now, Jaws is... Peter Benchley's first novel, and Jaws is Steven Spielberg's first major motion picture. He had worked in television and and done Duel, but by and large, this was him working on a big scale for the first time. So they're kind of on the same playing field. They are both newbies that are proving their talent. But, of course, we all know that Spielberg is an incredibly gifted filmmaker, a far better filmmaker than Peter Benchley is a writer, and it just shows here. I mean, there's there's just no comparison. Spielberg would go on to, to make many of the greatest hits of the next decade, and Peter Benchley, he wrote some more, you know, seafaring tales, and some of them were hits. A few of them got good critical notices, but by and large, he remained in the pulp novel section. He did not ever have the esteem of being a great writer, I don't think. 
And when you look at Jaws, I mean, there's it's just plagued with all sorts of the kinds of problems you expect from a first novel. I mean, first and foremost, I've got to put it out there that these characters are not likable on the page. Uh, Amity, the whole community, the Brodies, they're just pill-popping, depressed, dysfunctional people who don't like each other and consequently we don't like them either i mean maybe it does say something about long island and community that's true to peter benchley's experience but they're not much fun to watch and jaws has got to be fun i mean it's this is not great literature this is not a john updike deconstruction of you know east coast types Uh, we need to be behind our hero if if we don't care about the people on land we don't care when they get eaten and taken out to sea so Spielberg agrees with me. He was one of his big complaints when he read the novel. He felt like that they would have to do a lot to endear them. And, and that's Spielberg's talent. He knows how to win you over. He knows how to tell you the details that will win you over and have you rooting for his characters. And while I suppose that many people have knocked Spielberg for softening and sweetening complicated works later in his career, it's absolutely the right choice for Jaws. We do not need a dysfunctional and unhappy Jaws. And that's Spielberg's talent. He knows how to make you like his characters and get you went over very quickly and you know that the Brodies are great the casting is great the the way that we learn about them and it's just expedient fun and to the point and eventually just has a different take on things more to the point he goes all over the place uh, they had to limit some of the storylines here because there are secondary storylines that just detract from a great white shark adventure novel. I mean, let's face it, everything must serve the main thrust of the story, which is that a giant fish is killing a beachside community. It's pretty straightforward. But why do I have to deal with the romantic love triangle between Ellen Brody, Martin's wife, and Matt Hooper, the characters played by Lorraine Gary and Richard Dreyfus in the movie? They have an affair, and they, we have their sex scenes described vividly. I mean, even their foreplay, it's just its enough to make your stomach turn. I'm going to read a little bit, just so you can get a taste of what I'm talking about here. It's, it's not a soft touch that Peter Benchley applies to this. Here they are having dinner uh, with some wine, giving a toast to fantasies he said tell me all about yours his eyes were bright liquid blue and his lips were parted in a half smile ellen laughed oh mine aren't very interesting i imagine they're just your run-of-the-mill fantasies there is no such thing said hooper tell me oh you know just the standard things rape i guess is one how does it happen different ways she said name one Sometimes I'm in the kitchen in the morning after everyone has left and a workman from one of the houses next door comes to the back door. He wants to use the phone or have a glass of water. She stopped. And then I let him in the door and he threatens to kill me if I don't do what he wants. Does he hurt you? Oh, no. I mean, he doesn't stab me or anything. Does he hit you? No, he just rapes me. Is it fun? Not at first. It's scary. But then after a while, when he's... When he's got you all ready. Ellen's eyes moved to his, reading the remark. Yes, then it's fun. Yes, she sifted in her seat, for the recollection was becoming physical. Do you ever have an orgasm? Sometimes, she said. Not always. Is he big? Usually, said Ellen, and she chuckled. Huge. Is he black? Uh, Okay, I'm going to stop. You get the point here. This is really uh, some 
sordid crap. And I think, you know, if you were reading this on a beach in Long Island in 1974, it would be amusing. It's the kind of trash that is called escapist fare. It's not intellectual. You're not trying to analyze these things. It's just a little sex, a little adventure. Sure. But they're trying to do something different with Jaws. And I think we all can understand how it turned out, that it would be a true distraction from what Spielberg accomplishes if he were trying to cover all of this melodrama on the side. And so thankfully, that was excised completely. And it doesn't exist at all. It wasn't filmed and then they took it out. It was right from the get-go when the producers bought the novel. They're like, we love it, but this is coming out. And they were wise to do so. And another thing they killed and right to do so was a subplot involving the Mafia. Now, keep in mind, the Mafia was a much bigger deal in the early 70s. I mean, they were making the news. They were behind lots of things. You know, many people allege that's who killed Kennedy. And it just, you know, it was a big deal. And of course, in popular entertainment, the Mafia was a big draw. Both the movie and the book, Mario Puzo's Godfather, uh, were huge hits. And I'm sure Peter Benchley was inspired to buy those works to bring it into his and and to give an extra dimension to it. So how does it work? Well, it it turns out that the mayor, the reason why he's insisting on keeping the beaches open is not just to protect the retail and the revenue of the community. He is under pressure from mafioso who actually own real estate and that if the retail industry goes down, the housing value goes down and that hurts the mob. And so Brody pushes back on the mayor and they send somebody from Rhode Island to go to his house and strangle his cat. And so you have all of this conflict with will the mob hurt the Brodies? Again, is this needed? Is this something you really need in a story that's primarily about a man afraid of water going out to kill a fish? I mean, it just doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't integrate well. And so let's leave that for Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola to do much better. Let's get that out of Jaws. There's characters that are gone. There's a reporter character. He actually is the one instrumental in finding out about the mafia. He plays a much bigger role. They've cut it down. They cut all the major characters to the core, the ones you really like, the ones you really need, and they keep it really simple in the movie. And I think the simplicity of it, the likability, the performances, all of that just bring so much more than what is here on the page. And that's what it comes down to, really. Is there any moment when what's on the page outperforms what gets put on screen. I I didn't find one. There's no scene where I felt like the purple prose of Benchley made a stronger impression than what Spielberg and his crew and cast are able to do. It's just, it's chasing after the movie. And of course, it doesn't help the fact that I've seen Jaws so many times. So all of the images that convey are of Roy Scheider and Lorraine Gary and Richard Dreyfuss. These are the people I'm picturing here. There's nothing on the page that makes me confront or challenge those dyed-in-wool characterizations. It's probably worth mentioning the fact that Peter Benchley himself would later go on to retract Jaws. He has a bit of guilt about how it led to the overfishing and slaughtering of great whites and sharks in general. And he wrote the novel based largely on fact that, you know, he found stories in journals and published accounts of, of sharks and 
used all of that to inform his story, but truthfully, these were different sharks at different times, and the perception that they are predators out to eat every human is just false, and we've come to learn that now, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of research on sharks. There wasn't a lot of pushback from the scientific community to challenge what Benchley had written, and so consequently, it was put in a lot of impressionable minds that sharks are evil and that we should destroy them if we want to protect ourselves when we go swimming, and Benchley feels bad about that. He says in the foreword of the novel that on one hand, he knows that Jaws was instrumental in getting young people to read adult fiction, that it was sort of the bridge between you know, reading your comic books and, and reading your children's, you know, Judy Bloom or, or whatever in grade school to actually making the jump and saying, I'm going to read a novel. I'm going to read something with some girth and with some heft. And I, again, I kind of shudder when I think about 12 year olds reading those sex scenes between Ellen Brody and Matt Hooper. But, you know, it, it happens. And I and Peter Benchley can admire the fact that his book accomplished that goal and created a new generation of readers, but he's not particularly happy that it came at the cost of the shark itself. And some of his later works have actually been nonfiction clarifications going on record and, and getting it straight that great whites and sharks in general are not the threat that they're presented in the novel. But of course, why be so PC? We're here for fun. We're here for entertainment. Jaws is a great seafaring yarn. It's just a good story. But the truth of the matter is, Steven Spielberg unshackled the good story from all of the problems of the novel. I don't see any real reason to go back to the novel. And honestly, if they hadn't made a movie out of it, or if they had made a bad movie out of it, people would have probably stopped reading it after 1974. You know, it was popular one year. It was the Book of the Month Club selection, and people read it all that year, but I don't think it would have lasted. I don't think it would have been remembered if there had not been a movie to come along the next year and, and really be just as revolutionary more so uh, on the silver screen. So if you want to hear more about Jaws, you're going to have to head over to Now Playing and Brock and Arnie and I will be talking about Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3, and Jaws the Revenge. Here in Books and Nachos, I'm more or less done, but I, I, I got a little surprise for you. In a couple weeks, when we do cover Jaws the Revenge... I'm going to read the novelization. Why Why would I do that, you say, particularly if you have seen Jaws the Revenge? Well, if Jaws is the case of a mediocre work being elevated to a great film, then I'm going to make the case that sometimes a horrible, wretched film can actually end up being a good, fun, pulpy adventure. And when we cover the novelization, I'm going to make the case that it's not as bad as it ended up on screen. Thanks for joining me. Until we get to Jaws the Revenge, I hope you keep reading, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at PodsafeAudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2011, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved.